The last time I taught from John, we had a couple of people got the right answer as far as what's the main point of this pericope. And that main point was this right here, John 9:39. I came into this world for judgment, Jesus said, in order that those who do not see will see, and those who see will become blind. So there's a the whole story illustrates uh, the fact that spiritual blindness is caused by hard-heartedness is worse than physical blindness. And we'll see that when we get to that part of it. Eric, do you want to turn that on and begin in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our opportunity to gather here today around the means of grace. And we pray, Lord, that as we look into the book of John, that we would be those who have eyes that are opened to see the truth from your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to become better readers of Scripture so that our minds may be renewed. And we pray, Lord, for our teacher, Bob. We thank you for bringing him back to us. We pray for continued protection upon him and continued healing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Now, there's plenty more to learn. So we're going to look at some of the, some of the themes that are in the book of John. Yeah, I don't know how many of you have done any searches, but light is a theme. Believing is a theme. That Jesus preexisted and came into the world is a theme. What does it mean to work the works of God is a theme. Sabbath, if we get to it, is really important. And I don't think very few people understand what the New Testament says about Sabbath. It's like massive blindness in the entire evangelical church. Every stripe of Christian doesn't want to know what God said about Sabbath. They don't care. I don't want to hear it. We would rather have our traditions. And Jessica was just mentioned this. We're editing the Hebrews radio series that we did in the 90s. And I'm doing the editing, and Scott is putting... Uh, yeah, he's, we're, putting, we're going to be able to make CDs because some people don't know what a podcast is. And we're editing this, and every one seems better than the one before. I believe it was the best material that we had to offer in my lifetime, and I'm very honored that that's something we can leave behind. And there's a whole section in Hebrews about what Sabbath is all about, and it's very clear, and the argumentation is powerful, but Lutherans don't want to hear it. Reform doesn't want to hear it. People just don't want to hear it. You know why? Because we don't love the truth. The traditions of man are more important than the word of God, and that's what's going on here. So when you see this, and I see it, let's get the fear of God. Do I really care what God said? These hard-hearted people 
know that God healed a man who had been born blind, and there's a Sabbath issue going on all through John, and we'll talk about that. And they ekbalo, cast out, that's the word for casting out demons, they cast him out of their presence because he was trusting Christ because he was a sinner. Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. That makes him a sinner. So, at the end of Sunday school, they want to do something about some baby bottles. Is that okay? Don't let me forget. Bob, I I told uh, Judy to come over and just wave in my face or something. So All right, you're in charge of the baby bottles. Okay, now, let's get back to where we were last time, which was a while back. We came to, yes, Norm. Um, I got a question. You're talking about the Sabbath. One One of the big reasons why I've heard a lot of people like Reformed insist on the Sabbath is they feel it's part of the creation ordinance and and therefore it can't be altered. Well, that's why, but that's the very argument the author of Hebrew uses to prove that uh, every single person who doesn't come to Christ is a Sabbath breaker. That's what the author of Hebrew said. Okay? And the argument in, in Genesis 2 2 that God entered into rest after creation permanently. Sabbath isn't every seven days, it's forever and ever. If you don't come to faith, you're still working and you're going to hell. God created and entered rest. If you can hear that series we did, on Hebrews 3 and 4 for CIC, there's no, there's no doubt about it. I've been doing this now for 47 years, and I can tell you without any doubt whatsoever that the number one reason people don't learn the Bible is religious tradition. They'd rather have a tradition. Why? Because we don't want to work. We're too lazy. What do Baptists believe? Well, just tell me, then I believe that. They don't want to study. They don't want to learn. What do Lutherans believe? I have a document here and here from a Lutheran uh, group that says our creed is binding because it's all biblical, therefore it's binding for whatever it is, Missouri Senate or whoever. So I was looking at that. Well, wait a second. They're agreeing that the only thing binding is Scripture. And if their creed is once for all the perfect creed that covers every important doctrine and contains no error, it's not just binding on Lutherans, it's binding on everybody. But they won't let you correct it. If you correct it, they'll throw you out of their church. Now, I'm saying the Protestants are just as rebellious as the Catholics. And I'm getting old enough now, I just got to tell the truth. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. If we can't put our teaching out there for people to study, to challenge, to question. Here, do you have your Bibles open? Okay, go in John 9. Let's just 
read for a while. Let's go to, let's say, uh, uh, starting with verse 18. We'll, 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 we haven't quite got that far, but I'm assuming you've all read this. But just get the big picture, and, sh- and it'll show you how insidious religious traditions are. And when people embrace them, they'll throw a poor man who just came to faith out of fellowship like he was a demon. And they're supposed to be the righteous. John 9, 18. Uh, we got two Eric's here, so I'll, I'll go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. John 18. Uh, yeah. John 9, uh, verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Stop for a second. Now, I want you to, I want us to learn something about authorial intent. That's called the omniscient narrator. In a normal circumstance, here it says they said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. Well, John is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Normally, we wouldn't know that. But the, quote, omniscient narrator, the Holy Spirit-inspired Bible writer, tells us that. But why do we need to know that? Because we know it's important or it wouldn't be there. So if you confess Christ, you're gone. I don't think we see how bad that is. In other words... If you want to be part of us, it's going to cost you your eternal life. You've got to go to hell. Salvation is only through Christ. Am I overly dramatic? I remember last week, Mike Jenner talked about these sort of things. Do you want to know how to get out of this situation? You're going to have to come to Christ. Well, they were, they wanted to skirt it because... They'd be thrown out. Go ahead, Eric. Uh, we'll pick it up from, the, from, uh, from verse 23. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him. A little, little bit of humor there. Yeah, a little bit of humor. He's, he's given it back. Continuing then in verse 28, they reviled him 
and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Don't miss that one. That is so important. In the next few months, by God's grace, I'm okay here. I got stuff here. We have to decide who speaks for God. And we need to understand that all of the Gospels are telling us that Jesus speaks for God under the new covenant. And that Moses predicted that God would raise up a prophet like himself. And when he does, listen to him. You see that on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see that here. And you see it in Hebrews. We've been talking about that in our Hebrews. Uh, I hope you get to listen to that. I don't think in my lifetime I've been privileged to participate in better Bible teaching than what we did on that Hebrews radio. It was the best I've ever been a part of. And I thank God for that. We've got to decide who speaks for God. Next week, I've got to trust the Lord, pray for me that I keep my voice under control. Who speaks for God? If we can't decide that, we know nothing. Who speaks for God? Moses or Jesus? Is the old covenant binding on Christians? Not according to Galatians. Is... uh, What is Sabbath rest under the new covenant? Is it keeping of a certain day? Here's something to talk. Here's something I thought about listening to Hebrews for the third or fourth time through now. Because I taught through it in Sunday school. We went through it on the radio. Now we're doing radio again. I'm editing it. Here's the deal. The topic was on the table. Dear saints, we've got to read. The topic's on the table. In Hebrews 3 and 4, Sabbath rest is found in Christ. Those, not Moses, Christ. And those who don't come to Christ are not finding Sabbath rest. They're rebellious, no matter how fastidious they are, about Sabbath rules. They're rebels. They won't listen to God. That's what it says. And here's proof of it. If what the author of Hebrews really believed was that certain day of the week fastidiously kept is what Sabbath keeping is. Why, when the that topic comes up later, he says, don't forsake the assembling of the gather, together as is the habit of some, but, you know, gather and pray for one another. Why doesn't he say then, you have to do it on Sunday or you have to do it on Saturday? My claim is this. It's not specified because under the new covenant, the whole point is that God is going to take messianic salvation and take it to the whole world. And it's going to be flexible enough to be able to cross boundaries, to be able to allow people to gather on various days of the week as it's, as it's possible, as it can happen. It doesn't matter. You need to gather and pray for one another and cry out to God and hear the gospel and to teach and get together. We need that. And if somebody says, no, you do it this way at this time, because we say so, because we're the lawgivers, whoever's doing that is in rebellion against God. 
Because where in the world does the book of Hebrews say that unless you keep strict Sabbath rules on either Saturday or Sunday, then you're a rebel? Where does it say it? You know, uh, in addressing kind of the question that you had raised, Norm, you know, what about these reformers who appeal to the idea that God rested and it's a creative issue from the beginning of time? Well, it's interesting if we take that logic that God rested and he never worked again after creation, we're really left with deism, the idea that God simply created and then left his hands off the creation. What's interesting is even the Reformed have to affirm that God is working in a different respect. He's not creating, but he is bringing people to saving faith. He's working in his people. He works providentially through history. And a great passage that suggests this is if you turn your Bibles to Hebrews 4, the argument that the writer of Hebrews makes, this is Hebrews 4, and it's in verse 7. Yeah, we just, verse we seven. just were good. Well, I don't know when it's going to be broadcast, but I just oh. edited that. Oh, you did? Oh, it was really perfect. good. Yeah. Well, Go ahead and read it. Listen to what Bob has to say on it. But the big issue is listen to the passage that's cited. This is Hebrews 4, 7. It says, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted. Now, here's from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, listen to the logic. So remember, David wrote that around 1000 B.C., right? Well, that was 400 years after the time of Joshua. Well, the very next verse, he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, in the promised land, yep. if he had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So the idea is that the peoples going into the promised land couldn't exhaust God's rest. There still remained a rest for the people of God. And the writer of Hebrews is doing exactly what Bob is suggesting. He's saying ultimately Hebrew rest is, or Sabbath rest is found in Messiah. That's well, where we find it. That's right. where we have Actually, sins. Actually, we just finished editing that. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is linking Genesis 2-2 in Psalm 95, which is commenting on it. You've got to hear that material. And uh, Hebrews is so fantastic. And this is so necessary. When I was a new Christian, one of my friends in Bible college was a man by the name of Bill Bjorker, and he was in Israel pastoring a messianic fellowship of Jewish believers. And he came under severe persecution, literally. And they met on Saturday, Shabbat, because that's the day set aside in Israel where people can show up to a religious service. So if the people are claiming you must meet on Sunday, and then there's a bunch of rules about what you can and can't do on Sunday. The, the point is, God wants his salvation to go to the ends of the earth. And if you don't come to Christ, you're not resting. You're working, 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 working. And it'll all do you no good. You will not get to heaven, no matter how much you work. Let's keep reading. Verse 25, go ahead, Eric. Uh, okay, I'll, it's uh, this Eric, <laughs> I guess. Uh, verse 25, we read that a little bit earlier, but I'll read it again. He, that's the, uh, the blind man, he then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. 
So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you not want to hear it? Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> oh, dig. They, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They, that's the Pharisees, they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us? <laughs> so they put him out. You're out. Jesus put him out, threw him out, by the way. Ekbalo, that's a word used in the Gospels for casting out demons. Here's a man that's been blind his whole life. He's miraculously healed. Everybody admitted there's never, nothing like that ever had happened. So what's the reasonable thing to do? Throw him out. That makes a lot of sense. Would you think of that? He's got to go. We can't have any healed blind men in this group. That's how perverted religion is. Okay? Verse 35. I'll, I'll read for a bit. When Jesus heard that they'd thrown the man out, he found him and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man. Now, Eric Dalma, could you look up John 6, 29? One of the most important verses in all of John. This is about the work of God. Yes. Um, John six twenty nine. it says, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. The work of God is to believe in Christ. Sabbath rest is to believe in Christ. Salvation is to believe in Christ. Eternal life is to believe in Christ. Verse 36. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? The blind man who had been healed asked, you know, verse 37. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Derek Dalma, look up John twenty thirty one. It says, but these things were written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So was John's purpose in writing his gospel to believe in the Son of God? That's his overarching purpose. The healing of the blind man, we'll see here now. This came up the last time I taught. Brian found it. That's our answer. Verse 39. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Theology of reversal. 
Who was it that did, quote, see? Religious leaders. What happened to them? They became blind. How? How did they become blind? They rejected the only one that could ever give them true sight so that they would believe. The blind man not only received his physical sight, he came to faith. Verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, remember John chapter 4. Remember that term day I talked about earlier? Must, divine necessity. Verse 4 of John 9 says, we must do the works of him who sent me. Those that come to God must worship him in spirit and truth. So this must is being fulfilled by this man coming to faith in Christ. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? Do you think he means us? Verse 41, look at this. If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. You know, I loved what Mike Gendron taught us last week. And I, and I loved it when I, when I met him and heard him. And I believe God wants to use each one of us to bring the truth. I loved what he was saying. We can't, we're, we don't have to be the best salesman that ever existed. But if somebody does want to find out how to come to Christ, if they could find out, we should do so. Yes. I have a question about, it says, you know, Jesus said, for a judgment I came into the world. Um, but then um, it also says in John that Jesus said, I did not come in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might have life. You know. So yeah, they were already condemned explain? because unbelief is the uh, inherent state of the fallen world. So their guilt may become greater, but it was there before Jesus came. But the people that think they see become even more blind. It's not saying there's such a thing as a sinless person who doesn't need Christ. Go ahead, Nancy. Do you have something to add to that? Go ahead. I just, I still don't get it because I, I was just thinking of the wording. You know, he said, you know, for here for judgment I came in the world and then, in, in, um, you know, I did not come in the world to condemn the world but that the world through me might be saved. So it just seems like a um, contradiction. I know if it's not, Jesus had never, I don't think it's a contradiction. Had Jesus never, maybe Eric can add some insight to this. Had Jesus never come, people would go to hell. They didn't need him for that. But there's a certain irony to the judgment that comes on the religious leaders who think that they're right with God. That's the irony. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I don't think there's a contradiction either. I think the idea is, on one hand, he shows himself to humanity to save it, and yet the very rebellion against him is the basis of judgment. I think of that John twelve forty eight. this is that which will be your judge in the last day, the very words that I have spoken. 
And you think about even Hebrews 4, where how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So on the one hand, Christ comes to save, but the rejection of him is in itself judgment because the only means of salvation has been rejected. It actually makes one more culpable. Right. The greater data, in fact, the Pharisees, one of the things that makes them more culpable is they had an understanding of the Old Testament. They should have known Messiah was on the scene. They should have known Isaiah 35 was being performed in their presence where the lame were being healed, the, the blind were being given sight. Those who couldn't hear could now hear. Jesus doing all that. They should have known better. Yeah. And so, yeah Actually, when I start teaching Ephesians, one of the things I want to do is help us listen to what God is telling us and why he's telling us what he is. The, the thing that grieves me the most over the last 35, 40 years is people that get angry and actually leave the church unless you tell them that Ephesians doesn't mean what it says. They'll claim that you're just trying to uh, teach tulip or something like that. Well, Greg Boyd, I don't know if anybody was at the debate I had with Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd is an a open theist, and he doesn't believe God knows the future. And so they, KKMS had this big debate all lined up, John Piper and Greg Boyd. Well, John Piper dropped out with like two weeks to go, and they, they didn't have anybody to debate Greg Boyd. So they called me, and I'm not even in the same league. I don't have a PhD, and I'm not a world-renowned theologian. I'm just a local preacher. But, you know, I'm just too naive to think I can't debate. I don't know. I just It seems to me that the truth is a lot simpler than people give it credit for. So I debated Greg Boyd. And I don't know, if it, was anybody here there at that? You were there. I just put up a scripture, and Greg Boyd, who has written 14 books at that time, he knew every philosophy that had ever been discussed about God's relationship to the future, all right? And there's four views, free will, and then equal ultimate C, kind of fatalism, open theism, and middle knowledge. And I was prepared to debate any one of them, but that wasn't my point. I wanted to tell them what the Bible said. So I pulled up a passage, put it up on a slide, and it said, He chose you from the beginning for salvation. And so then I just put it up up there and said, Who's he that chose God, who's the person chosen? The Christian. What did he choose the Christian for? This is from Thessalonians. Salvation. When did he choose the Christian for salvation? From the beginning. And I just put that up there. I said, well, that's what it says. I don't think it's really that hard to understand. But he wanted to talk about open theism and God doesn't know everything and omniscience 
is limited. God willfully will limited his own omniscience so that we can be free to be masters of our own destiny. And so he was going with all of that. And all I had just kept putting the Bible up there. I found that PowerPoint, by the way, we used. I found it the other day and recovered it. Now, the funny thing was, because it was supposed to be somebody more important than me, so we got all these questions, and the two of us, Greg Boyd and I, were going back to look through the questions. He says, you got really strong biblical evidence. <laughs> but here's the difference. He believed in philosophy. I believe in scripture alone. Yes, were you there? Give that to The funny thing about being there and observing the debate was that uh, Boyd had a big following. Uh, people that were there because Bob got called in to sit in for Piper, there was a handful of people there that, that Bob knew. But Boyd has all his lemmings there. And, and every, well, time, people, every huh? time Boyd would make a, uh, a point, albeit a false point, you would hear the applause and so on and so forth. But when Bob challenged him with a question, he was like your typical liberal, and he would just dance around the outsides of the question and never get to the meat of the question. And his people were, I mean, it was almost like they were in some kind of a weird zone. Yeah. I mean, it was bizarre. Back here, I'll, I've got a comment on that, but go ahead. Oh, I, you know, I was uh, probably kind of overdoing that one point, but I was just looking at this. Uh, Jesus said, I came into the world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see. I was just thinking, is that in the Greek different than to judge? Because it seems like for judgment is like... Uh, probably into yeah. who has the Greek. I got the Greek here. I'll see if I can do two things at once. Well, let me say this about... Here it is. Here's the Greek text. What verse are you talking about? 39? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, 39, yep. All right, I'll find it. So afterwards, I had to get people from our church to help. They were just lined up. Ryan Hobbiner was helping me and anybody I could find. And they were Greg Boyd's young followers. And they, they were, it looked like their eyes were like saucers. Because they just assumed that there's no way God is in charge of much of anything. They were the masters of our own destiny. It's all they'd ever heard. But he had not ever made it clear to them that he doesn't believe the Bible. Because once you do that, then you're not an evangelical. So when I made it so clear what the Bible actually said, well, they go, how can that be? I said, well, I'm not changing what it says. It's just simple. Let me go to this and I answer your question. When we do Ephesians, I've got some great sources. I'm so excited about it. Eric called me. I meant, that meant so much to me that Eric called and we talked about it. The only thing we want to know is what did God say? What's his point and why do we need to hear it? Why are we being told that we're safe? Before we even start Ephesians, think about this. Do I want to be safe or do I want to think God is fair as far as the world's concerned? Do I have some other agenda than Paul did? Why would those people in Ephesus feel unsafe? 
because they were afraid, like the Colossians, they're afraid of the hostile powers, the stoichia, the demons. And they were tormented. Okay, over here, we're, we're on what verse now? All right, I'm finding it. I may be slow, but I still get there. And uh, he palms you. Ice, I thought it was ice. Into judgment, it's an accusative. Into is, I would take it as a purpose clause. Ice, into. It's either a physical location or a purpose, I think. But I think the physical location is Jesus said, ice into crema, judgment. They go ice into the world. This world came, here's the active indicative. Okay, I hope some of you are working along with this. This is how you learn. What does Jesus mean in John when it keeps saying he comes into the world? What's the point of Jesus coming into the world? How does John start? What's John 1, 1 through 18? It's, yes. I just, uh, uh, I'm looking at John 3, 16, which everybody knows, and then 17 and 18. Go ahead. And I just would like to read 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved, but that the world might be saved through him. And then verse 18, he who believes in him, that is Jesus, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. So the judgment that all non-believers, they will, they will face the yeah, great white that's throne. that's a theme. See, one of the things, Eric, over here, that we learn is when there's repeated ideas, oh, and whoever, whoever else asked about this, you look for repeated ideas because they're thematic. Come into the world as repeated idea. In John 1, 1 through 18, it's about the pre-existence of Christ who existed with God and as God from all eternity and is the co-creator of the entire cosmos. Now, ice here into is, I think... Uh, into judgment. Coming into the world brought judgment. Not that judgment wouldn't have been already there, but it actually gets more intense. See, people who think that you're saved by lack of hearing the gospel, have you ever heard that theory? That if you never heard, then you're saved? Well, that's a big motivation for, motivation for gospel preaching, isn't it? we got to be really careful. Somebody might hear about Christ and lose their salvation that they have from their lack of knowing anything. And the reason this material is in the world, I mean, in the Bible, about what's coming into the world, is that we don't think that way. It was already condemned. But now there's a possibility of coming to Christ and finding salvation. And finding light. Verse 39, into judgment I came into the world, and uh, Erkomai, in the 
aorist active, that hina, that's a purpose clause, hina, the one seeing, that's a participle, present, a present active participle, <laughs> might, the ones not seeing might see, and the ones seeing might become blind. It's, it means what it says. You know what the greatest blessing you can have is a love for the truth, to welcome the love of the truth so as to be saved. I felt a lot of hope for those young people that were standing there at that debate with the saucer-sized eyes. How can this be? How can this be? Well, it's what it's trying to tell us. God is saying, you are safe. You are safe. The devil's not going to get you because you don't know enough about the world of the spirits. We're going to be talking about that. You are safe because you have faith in Christ. Christ is the Lord over all. He's the Lord over all of the creation, spiritual and material. And if you're in him, you are safe. That's the point. And we'll see that in Ephesians. It's so glorious. I'm so excited. I'm glad I didn't teach Ephesians 20 years ago because I didn't understand it anyhow. The good news is I knew I didn't understand it, so I didn't teach it. Because everybody was going to their corner, their traditions. And now there's better ways to read it. Yes. If it's okay, I'd like to change a little topic. I have, a, I guess, a comment and a question about some of the earlier passages. Yes, please do. If that's okay. So I thought it was interesting that here the Jewish leadership says they don't know where Christ came from. And it seems like, if I remember correctly, earlier in John, when Jesus is talking about himself and that he is the Messiah, they said, well, the Messiah, we were not supposed to know where he comes from, yet we know where this man came from. So I thought that was just kind of a, an interesting comment on it. They yeah. kind of seem to go back and forth. On They're it. trying to be as confused as possible. <laughs> right. A lack um, of love. I guess my question true. for you as well is, we have the Jewish leadership here, and we have a sign, a clear sign from God, and that was attested to in the Old Testament. But I could see how... The Jews at the time, they had the test of the prophets, right? If the miracle happens and they teach to go to another God, you're not to accept him. And we know that, you know, here it says that only God can do these things, which I guess is true. But we see in Revelation that Satan's going to raise up the Antichrist. So it seems like we have to take some caution in these signs that we see and how do we that's a good know point. where those are coming from, and I could just see how people could get confused. Very good. Here, well, while I'm thinking about that, Eric Dalma, I'm, I hope I'm not wrong, but look at Isaiah 35 and see if it says anything about Messiah, healing the blind. But, Ryan, what's really interesting is in Deuteronomy, there's two chapters that talk about how you know who that prophet is that God sent. One is in chapter 13, Deuteronomy 13. All right? And I, I believe, now maybe, oh, Ryan, do you have a whole Bible there? Could you go look at Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4 or 5? 
See what it says? And then chapter 18 is about that prophet like Moses who will speak for God. But one of them will say, well, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, Deuteronomy 13, 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So there's a doctrinal test. The sign came true, like the in Daniel's 70th week, the, the idol that speaks, but it's a false god. And then Deuteronomy 18 is the prophet like Moses. Yeah, I can read that one too. Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Amen. Listen. What does it mean to listen? This is who speaks for God. Did you find anything or did I mislead you? No, I, I did. You're exactly right. So Isaiah 34 is about the judgment that comes upon the nations. Isaiah 35 then is about the salvation of the redeemed, those who are God's chosen. And, and when Messiah comes on the scene, it starts talking about his work in verse 5. Isaiah 35, 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become like a pool. So what's interesting is ultimately this is going to be fulfilled at Jesus' second advent. So think of the second advent as the consummation of the Messiah's work. But at his first advent, it's the inauguration. And so you see these miracles being done, showing that one day in his kingdom, there aren't going to be lame, there aren't going to be blind, there aren't going to be those who are deaf. But he's doing that at the inauguration of the kingdom to say, I am the Messiah. Yeah. I'm the one who brings true life. We call that yeah. the already not yet. Exactly. Amen. Oh, I love the truth. You love the truth. Isn't it exciting? Yeah. Amen. I can't get through it all. There's too much. Uh, in Second Samuel, we have the uh, uh, King David uh, getting the uh, city of the Jebusites, which was later to become Jerusalem. And in uh, verse... Uh, 6 there, chapter 5, it says, uh, you will not come in here. They're taunting him. You will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back. And then down to verse 8 there, David said on that day, whoever would strike down the Jebusites, let him uh, get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind and those whom David hates. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Well, this chapter 9 is, uh, this is Jerusalem, or the city of the Jebusites, same place. Uh, the water is coming from the same water shaft, and yet it's the healing of the lame and the spiritually blind. Amen. That is an astute reading. That's free coffee. Free coffee. Lavon. <laughs> I'm just thinking about... Um, the apostles that Jesus chose, he gave them the ability to do miracles. Um, but, and it was to confirm that what they were teaching was from God. They were pointing to Christ. Yes. And so if you have someone doing miracles, but they're not pointing to Christ, it's a false. Right. We're not false saying teaching. that every claimed miracle is a false one. 
a lot of them are, but a lot of false teachers may be able to see something happen that there's no natural explanation. But if they're saying go after other gods, they're false no matter what. I got another question. I'll be irritated with myself if I don't ask this one. Um, so this blind man gives this amazing testimony to the um, Pharisees and Sadducees and all, you know, and, um, you know, this man was from God. He could not do anything. But then a little bit later, Jesus finds him. He's cast out of the synagogue. And then he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Right. And then he believes. But I don't understand that. It looks like he already believed back before. He said. Nope. He comes to faith later. Because he said if this wasn't man wasn't from God, he could do nothing. So he already acknowledged this, this yeah. man is, is from God. See, now, so as what, I said what earlier. What's the difference? Well, there, there's, a, there's a narrative purpose usually for a lot of this. If you go back, I think there's a contrast with chapter 5. Remember John 5? There was a lame man waiting for the stirring of the water. And when Jesus found him, he asked if he wanted to be healed. He didn't even say yes. He just started complaining. Somebody always gets there in front of me. So Jesus heals him. We we covered this about a month ago. What happened? He said, take up your pallet and walk. He's walking. He never bothered to find out who Jesus was. So I think there's a purposeful contrast between John 5 and John 9. And so the Sabbath issue comes up in John 5. So he's carrying his pallet. And what did they say to him? Well, Sabbath, you can't do that. And he said, well, the man who, uh, who healed me told me to carry it. So then they were looking to persecute Jesus for being a Sabbath breaker. So the same irony exists in both narratives. Keeping religious rules is more important than messianic salvation to those who are religious but don't have true faith. Now, the man in John 5 never does come to Christ. He went and turned Jesus in for being a Sabbath breaker. But let's keep reading here. What was the difference now with the guy in John 9? You can go back and read John 5. Do we have a... a, a Oh, Ryan, go ahead. I was just going to bring up Nicodemus, just because he says something similar. Yes. He said in John 3, verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Yet we see throughout John 3 that Jesus is telling him, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, you've got to be born again. He doesn't understand these things. And he's rebuked, and he said that, well, you're a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things. So I think maybe that's the type of belief that he had at the beginning when he was saying that you are from God, and then later he believes in the Messiah. Yeah, yeah. John 9, uh, 3, 19 to 21. This then is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth 
comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. It's the work of God to believe. Now, that's why Mike Gendron said what he did. It's such a great idea. If I could tell you how you can know you're saved and have eternal life, even if it wasn't what you've been taught, are you interested in hearing it? And if they say, no, I don't want to hear it, I'm happy with the Pope. (laughs) But if they say, well, yeah, I wouldn't mind hearing that. That's how he knows that this may be one of the elect, and he goes ahead and does it. Now, let me quick finish. We've got to get these ladies a chance. But notice verse 36. I'm in that light. John 9, 36. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? There's a guy who wants to know. That's what Mike was telling us last week. Find those guys I want to know, or ladies. Find them. They're out there. That's what happened to me. Who is he that I might believe in him? Jesus answered. You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Look at verse 38. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. We must worship. And then 39, we talk about some of the Pharisees were with him, heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind, are we? And then we talked about that. Yeah, you are blind. And if you admitted that you were, You'd learn how to see. I need Christ. What about you? Do you need Christ? Have you ever gotten such a horrible situation in your life where the one thing that seems more important, more salient than everything and anything is that Jesus Christ loves you and saved you It may not seem very theological. I keep getting to that point. I would like to be self-sufficient, but I'm not. And I've ended up in some horrible situations in the last three weeks. How many times? Dear Jesus, I need you. I need you, Lord. I need you. I need Christ. I need the body of Christ. I need prayer. Dear elders, I'm going to be up there afterwards. i got to find you. I need prayer. God kept me here, so I want to equip the saints. You need prayer, too. But if somebody dies, that doesn't mean they failed. This is God's, uh, like uh, my old friend Barb used to say, this is God's gig. That's how she said it. He's in charge. So remember they asked in John, well, what about this man? Well, how long is he going to live? What do you care? Can you figure that out? Somebody says, well, he's going to stay until I return. Or He didn't actually say that. But if he did, would he, would, why would you care? But we do, don't we? But one thing is necessary, and that's that we believe. Now, Mr. Eric uh, Fredrickson, have the ladies tell what they got. Hi, I'm here today. Um, We're going to start with our Bottle for Life campaign, um, which is to support Amnion Crisis 
Pregnancy Center, thank you. And these bottles are in the back and you can put your donations in there and it says right on the bottle that on February 14th, on that Sunday, we will be collecting them. Amnion, I just want you to know, you've been talking about this all morning. Amnion is a gospel-centered ministry for those that are in a situation where they have an unplanned pregnancy. And so they do biblical counseling at Amnion. It's not just coming in for a service. They have wonderful services. They do providing pregnancy testing and ultrasound and that type of thing and parenting and prenatal education. But the main thrust, the backbone, the foundation is Christ-centered. So it is a foundation um, that is a nonprofit organization. So it's a wonderful thing. We start our day every time that we're there. We start our day in prayer. All right. They're upstairs, too. Okay. I'm going to close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this group that wants to learn and study and pray for one another and help one another. I thank you for the precious flock that has prayed for me and others that are suffering. And may we always care for each other. And may we love the tr- truth so much that we just hunger to learn. Help us learn, Lord. Thank you for that. And may we pray for each other and honor your holy name in Jesus' name. Amen. And please pray for me. I want to, I'm all excited about preaching Ephesians and I'm hoping I can do something that's an actual contribution to the study of Ephesians that isn't just a redundancy of whatever else has been said. What's Paul want us to do? Does he want us to have faith and be safe in Christ? I say yes. Eric is in Romans, and it's going to be really good. God bless you.